Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Oh, that it may be that we would be so enraptured by the praiseworthiness of our God that we would command even the rocks and hills and trees to praise our Lord. If you would open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, chapter 3. Um, Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, you are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of unceasing praise. You are worthy of glad praise. And so I pray that we would give to you the glory due your name this morning. Help us understand how our singing is connected to our hope in the truth about your son, Jesus. Please give us the strength and clarity of mind and stir within us by your spirit that we would praise your son, Jesus, with all of our being. Pray these things for your glory and the fame of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. As we discussed a few weeks ago, the translation of the verse is a little bit tricky There is some question as to what the relationship of the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is to the other verbs. Some people take it to say, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with thankfulness to God. I think it makes more sense to say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So it's two ways this text gives us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And if you, you know, we've already spent multiple weeks discussing what the word of Christ is, why it should dwell in us richly, why it's that important, and how we ought to let it and what teaching and admonishing is. So this week we are just focusing in on this idea of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I want to just say a note because we're not going to get bogged down with this. People have tried to line out exactly what these three different words are, what psalms means, and that probably means the psalms, the literal psalms, hymns, that might mean uh, a song that had been in circulation in the Christian church for some time, and spiritual songs may be something that someone would just say uh, 
uh, improv and just sing praise to the Lord. That might be what it means, but we're not going to get overly burdened by the distinction between these things. I think the idea is just like the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. It's, it's, he's trying to cover everything. Anything that is fitting, anything that is a, an appropriate way to express praise to God, use it to praise your God. That's what I think it's saying. And so understand how it functions in the context. He's not just stacking commands on each other. Singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to God, right? Because that's, that's how it's taken. Singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing these to God is a primary means of causing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Hey, that, that's the main thesis of this sermon, that us, the people of God, singing all sorts of songs to God is a primary way that the word of Christ itself dwells in us richly. So the word of Christ dwelling us richly, then, is at least a primary objective of the music ministry of any church, if not the primary objective. So understand how it works. The objective of the word of Christ dwelling in us richly is the umbrella. That's the the goal, as it were. And underneath are these other things that we do. Primarily in our context here in this passage, teaching and admonishing one another and now singing. So we sing to the Lord in order to cause the word of Christ to dwell in us, among us, in our midst, richly. Is that how you would answer If someone were to ask you, what is the primary purpose of a music ministry? Would you say it is to cause the word of Christ to dwell richly in us? Some alternative answers might be something like this. Preparing our hearts for the word. Giving glory to God. Lifting our spirits to get us in the right mindset or to set the mood. In a way, all of those, to some varying degrees, some more than others, are correct and they should happen. But most of them, yes, even saying to glorify God isn't specific enough. It's not precise enough. Everything should be done to glorify God. We need to be more specific, though, in our answers about music because there are a lot of ways, frankly, of getting it very wrong. The music ministries at many churches are so variant and all across the board that and, and there are such thing as worship wars or were in previous generations because of a lack of careful thinking and biblical theology on this point where where taste and style and and fitting into the culture became more important than why God gave us music in the church in the first place. And even if we're to say the glory of God, like what, what is the point of the music ministry of your church? Well, to glorify God. That's, we, we need to be more precise because we're, just, like I said, we're supposed to do everything to the glory of God. Why do you unload and load the dishwasher? The right answer is to glorify God. But you gotta say a few more things to answer the question, how am I to unload and load the dishwasher to the glory of God? And there are answers, but this isn't a sermon about dishwashing. We, we, we need to be more specific. And think of, think of it this way. 
This is another way of asking the question. How has God ordained that we should glorify him through the use of music as a church? That's the question. It's obvious that we should glorify God. But how is it that God wants us to glorify him as a church through music? And understand it. This is an aside. I didn't even plan to say this, but this is different, a different answer than how you would use music in your own life. Okay, there's there's maybe more broad application of how you can glorify God with your consumption and even production of music in your own life and what you consume and what you don't consume. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about as a church, how we together glorify God through music. And my answer to that question, I'll just lay it on the table here so you know, based on this text, it is at least a primary way that God himself wants us to glorify him in our music by using music to cause the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. That's how he wants us to glorify him through music. And I think it's at least envisioned in the parallel passage in Ephesians. You can turn there, Ephesians 5. Uh, Paul likely wrote Ephesians and Colossians at the same time, and so there are similarities, there are differences. We shouldn't run to Ephesians whenever we have a problem with Colossians or vice versa. Uh, But this does give us some insight into what Paul is thinking. Actually, pick it up in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. It, It more literally maybe would say talking to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And I think what he is envisioning is the meeting. Okay, he's not saying that the Christian life ought to be some weird musical, right? You don't have to use music whenever you speak to someone who's a believer. However, when it comes to the gathering, when it comes to how we spend our time, our limited moments together, when we actually assemble as a church, we're to use psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to make the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That's what it's about. So I want to give you seven ways, seven ways of thinking about singing and the word of Christ. Seven ways to think about singing and the word of Christ. And these, some of these are just directly from the text or just thinking about the text. And some of them are from my own experience and just biblical theology in general. Number one, singing all kinds of songs or music, and this is alluded to when he says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, demonstrates that Jesus deserves all kinds of praise because he is all kinds of glorious. Say it another way. A savior of manifold glory deserves manifold creativity and expression from his worshipers. That's how we teach each other about who Jesus is through our use of music, that He deserves all kinds of praise. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, whatever is fitting and whatever is appropriate, we're going to bring that to Him and praise Him with it because He is that kind of Messiah. He is that kind of Lord. He is that glorious. To do the opposite, then, is to teach a lie about Christ and His Word. If we're not careful... We will teach that by our actions, with music and singing, that the worship of Jesus is only a worthy thing to do if it is through a narrow type of songs that we really like. If 
we let it be about taste and style, then we're saying that I will only praise Jesus. He's only worthy of my praise if it fits with the things I like most. And so then you're taking what you like most and putting it above the glory of Christ. So in essence, to do that, to let that happen, it it betrays that our heart is not set on the Lord first and foremost. And that we don't understand His Word. We don't understand the gravity of what He's done. Sometimes I think we'll, we're, we, we will enjoy heaven because it will meet all of our preferences. We don't know what the style of music's going to be. And it's arguable that there will be all kinds of styles of music. Angelic and human alike. There's no way to get ready for being okay with all that different type of style and expression, except if your heart is transfixed on the Lord himself. And his glory matters more to you than a particular preferred type of expression. Why limit our praise to one style or to one century? Here's how we say it on our church website. Every service includes reverent worship through song, the reading of Uh, the reading of and preaching of the word of God and prayer. We sing songs selected from the rich heritage of Christian hymns written over the centuries that have stood the test of time and of doctrine. We also sing theologically sound newer songs that are appropriate for our setting. I think that embraces what we're trying to do. Because Jesus deserves it. The greater the glory of a person the more various kinds of honor they deserve. We understand this. The better the story is, the more it it kind of lends itself to multiple iterations. Like the Arthurian legends, I think, are some of the best stories that exist. They they, they teach us so much and can, but but people just riff on it over and over and over. And in a sense, it never gets old because it's such a great story. And Jesus is such a great Messiah that he deserves all kinds of people of all kinds of styles doing their very best to praise him. Isaac Watt said it this way in his hymn, Jesus shall reign. Let every creature rise and bring peculiar honors to our king. Newer versions say blessing and honor, and that's fine. Uh, but this is this is part of my point. We we don't use words like that anymore in our singing. The, the songs that you hear on the radio, peculiar honors. But that's what Jesus deserves, does he not? Simplicity is fine, but but does not our God deserve our very best? Consider that the point of expanding your own vocabulary and your own taste is because. God deserves your praise. He deserves your multifaceted praise. And that teaches something about the word of Christ, does it not? That your willingness to stretch and push the envelope and stretch the boundaries of what you're comfortable with because Jesus deserves it, tells everybody else how valuable the word of Christ is to you. And this is the place for artistic skill and discipline, not to make much of the performers or the singers or the musicians, but to create songs. Not to create songs that get people wrapped up into an experience or feeling, 
but to compose and play and lead the people of God up into a higher level of praise and adoration through all kinds of songs, through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, because Jesus Christ deserves it. Number two, singing to the Lord is the most tangible proof of thankfulness. Look look at our passage again. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Gratitude should undergird the entire Christian life. And we know this. It should be the number one uh, affectionate, emotional, however you want to describe it, response. It's just gratitude. Because of the knowledge of what God has done and who He is. So, singing... If you look through the history of the church and and the Bible, singing is the first thing people begin to do when they're really, really grateful. Consider the crossing of the Red Sea. Immediately after they're done, they didn't start, all right, where are we going to set up our tents? Moses starts singing. And then when he's done, Miriam starts singing with tambourine and they're, they're just Praising God because they've just been saved. Or Mary. When she understands the gravity of what God is doing through the promised coming one in her womb, she sings her magnificent in Luke 1. So salvation is promised. The promises are beginning to be fulfilled and she just sings. If we're unwilling to sing, then it demonstrates that even if we claim to be grateful people, we are not really thankful at all. And this is why entertainment or feeling-oriented worship is so dangerous. Because ungrateful people can be swept up into singing anything if it's professionally done. You think if you go to a Coldplay concert or a U2 concert, and I'm dating myself, I'm sorry, That all those people are grateful? No. Some of them might be. They're they're just wowed that they're even able to be there. Such an amazing experience, I'm sure. But they're not grateful to God for the most part. Even if you go to a Christian's concert, can you be sure that those people who are there are grateful? Anybody walking into an experience like that is going to get swept up into it and sing. So, are you really grateful? Have you indeed seen the salvation of the Lord? Is your heart truly filled with thankfulness? If we really understood and embraced the gospel and understood all of the grace of God at work, then our lives, our hearts, and our minds would indeed be filled with thankfulness. And we just couldn't hold it in. And we would sing to the Lord, because we're so grateful. Number three, singing in all circumstances demonstrates that we really want Jesus to be preeminent. Say that again, because it's tied into the theme of Colossians, I think. Singing in all circumstances demonstrates that we truly want Jesus to be preeminent. Look look at it again when he says, uh, do everything... In the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
do everything that means also endure hardship in the name of Jesus. And most of our life is just a long line of hardships. And Paul says in Colossians 1 that God's purpose in even creating the world is to make Christ preeminent. So in, in all things, not just as the final result at the end of the book, but preeminent in all things. He's, he is meant to be preeminent in your suffering. He is meant to be preeminent in your victories. He is meant to be preeminent in your day to day. So when we sing to the Lord in all circumstances, we show that the preeminence of Christ really is what we want. Just as Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a song that is based on that text. You give and take away. And that fell out of disfavor in many in American evangelicalism because of that idea. We don't we don't want to say that God gives and takes away? Are you willing to praise the Lord in all circumstances? Is this not the legacy of the martyrs tied to a stake, set on fire? Gory details that I won't go into. And singing. Is this not what Paul and Silas did in prison? Having received this orders, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to him. They had already been beaten. Their attempts to bring the gospel into Philippi did not go well, at least from an outward perception. In jail, fastened to the stock in the deepest part of the prison and singing. This is, in fact, I, I really want you to get this, that our willingness to sing in all circumstances is part of the reason we're here and not already with the Lord. Because it's, it's not going to be hard to sing one day. But now, when it is hard, Ephesians, 10, uh, Ephesians 3, verse 10, rather, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The angels are even looking to see what we're going to do. Are we going to keep trusting in God like Job did? Are we going to praise Him when everything is stripped away? That's the question. That is what's going on in the universe. That is how God is getting glory from you right now. The universe stands at attention and we are what is being beheld. Will these former rebels worship the Lord even when things go horribly wrong? And how much glory does God receive when the answer is yes, they will? A corollary of this is that not just in all circumstances, but at all levels of quality of music, <clears throat> you know, imagine if you were uh, 
if you showed up to a play, let's say you lived in New York and you enjoyed going to plays and writing blogs and reviewing and critiquing it, and you show up to review or critique a particular play and you forgot that you had also signed up for the lead role. And you're sitting there ready to critique and nothing's starting because the lead role is you. Let's continue it a little bit further. This analogy of stage and actor. So the performers or the musicians or the singers, they, they are setting the stage. They're creating the context. And the main role, the lead role, is you. The people of God showing up and praising God in all circumstances, in all levels of quality, in all ranging tastes and styles. Will the people of God praise God? That's the question. How are we answering it? Again, it's another danger in entertainment and professionalism in worship. It's so nice and cool and rocking. Who wouldn't worship? But we know that the smoke and lights and everything else that we can adorn the worship experience with is not what we should adorn faith with. 2 Peter 1, 5-7 tells us, what we should adorn faith with, with virtue, with brotherly love, and so on. If he stripped away everything from us, would we still worship? Would we still sing? That's the question. That's what he wants those watching to see, the heavenly beings and the world, and your children. Mom and dad, If you want to make the word of Christ dwell richly in your children, sing to the Lord in all circumstances because he deserves it. Whether you can keep a beat or sing on tune or not, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Number four, singing ought to teach us how to think and feel rightly about the truth. To think and feel rightly about the truth. Music, I think, gives us the opportunity to express the wide range of human emotions that are fitting as we respond to the truth about God. The song, It Is Well, might be one of the greatest hymns ever written. But notice how it is written and how it should be sung. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And then starting low, it is well. Responding, it is well, it is well. Even higher. And then a crescendo of it is well with my soul. It is as if we are staring into the night and staring into the calamity and saying it is well with my soul because of what? God has done. It tells us how to feel when it's written rightly. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. One of my kids' favorite, even though it's in a minor key. But that's part of the point, is it not? It tells us how we ought to feel about this deep, deep love of Jesus. It can be terrifying. His love, as even a more modern song says, is like a hurricane and we're like a tree. Have you ever seen a tree in a hurricane? 
His love is ferocious and He will not relent until your heart is holy unto Him. It tells us, music rightly written gives us an opportunity to know how, we're ought to, how we ought to feel about these words. <clears throat> Once I heard of a preacher, I don't remember who it was, I think it might have been Martin Lloyd-Jones or Spurgeon because it just sounds like a very British thing to do. He got up in the middle of this worship service, stopped the whole congregation from singing and said, you're not singing it right. Because a God who has saved us like this deserves you to sing like this was the point. Sometimes joy is a must. Rejoice is a command. And it is arguable it is the most repeated command in all of Scripture to rejoice in the Lord. So when you come, regardless of circumstances, rejoice in the Lord. It is possible through faith. However, sorrow sometimes is a must. This is from a, an article I found about this very thing. Every Sunday gathering should have moments of adoration, thanksgiving, confession, celebration, and the like. The church should be a space where a wide range of emotions are acceptable. Guilt, shame, sadness, joy, thankfulness, and so on. When we only sing upbeat songs about how happy we are to be in the house of the Lord or how we're going to serve our guts out this next week because Jesus is awesome, we tactically teach people that feeling sad or guilty or downtrodden is somehow sub-Christian, a posture unfit for praising God. And just as an aside, we know that's not true. You just read the Psalms. There are many songs that extol Jesus while also being honest about feeling sorrow and pain. The article continues, I'll never forget singing, Be Still My Soul, a few days after hearing of a friend's terminal cancer diagnosis. Though somber and designed to elicit emotions, perhaps only a few present were feeling, this song hoisted me into the loving arms of Jesus. Can happy songs do that too? Of course. But when there's never any seasoning of sorrow in our gatherings, we risk broadcasting a counterfeit sub-Christian message about what it means to be a human pursuing Christ-likeness in a fallen world. We're communicating to both our members and our visitors that Christians are always happy and that a relationship with Jesus eradicates grief. We're setting up people for disappointment or unpreparedness in the face of difficulty. And as I said, is that not what the Psalms teach? Though singing and music should give expression to the wide range of human emotions that are fitting to praise God, you know one emotion that is never acceptable? Apathy. And so much is spent, especially for you young people, to make sure you don't become apathetic. But typically, it's not through the right things. It's not showing you how beautiful and valuable Jesus is and how wonderful His Word is. It's other stuff so that you don't lose interest. Number five. Singing brings our redemption to culmination ahead of schedule. Singing brings our redemption to culmination ahead of schedule. Understand what we are. 
We are former rebels. Turn back to Colossians 1. Verse 21. And you who were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh. And he goes on, but, but, but just, just pause and think of what you are outside of Christ. Alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. We're wicked. We're rebels. We hate God outside of Christ. And one day we will be in perfection the bride of Christ, one with God and one with one another. And when we sing, we give a preview. We, we kind of jump ahead in time to show the world and to show ourselves what we're going to be. Because we're, we were rebels and we still sin and we still put to death the deeds of the flesh and we have to every day. But when we sing, we say, this is what we will be. Turn to the revelation to John chapter 19. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. There will be much more to do in heaven than just singing. Trust me. Trust the Bible. Don't trust me. Trust the Bible. But in fact, singing here and now gives us the best window into the whole economy of heaven because everything will be centered around the glory and praise of Jesus, whatever we're doing, whether we're singing or not. And when we gather as his people, when we carve out time in our limited schedule, when we in all circumstances, come with the will to praise Him and to rejoice in His presence with His people. We show the world what we're going to be. We remind ourselves what we're going to be. I've never had a near-death experience, at least as traditionally defined. And I've never had a vision or dream in those biblical senses, but I have had visions of heaven. When you see God's people praising Jesus in all circumstances, that is a better window into heaven itself than anything anyone has ever experienced, including the Apostle Paul. Because he didn't want to even speak about it. He wanted the church to be holy and pure and worshiping Jesus. Here's the point. These are the ones who will delight in Jesus and praise Him. These, these who were hostile in mind, these who were doing evil deeds, these who were wicked. Yes, these are the ones who will worship God in passionate adoration because He has saved them. Number six. Singing as God's commands us <clears throat> is one of the primary ways that the Spirit builds us into a dwelling place for the Lord. That's a long sentence. Let me give it to you again. Singing, as God commands us, is one of the primary ways that the Spirit builds us into a dwelling place for the Lord. 
Hopefully you know now, if you've been uh, coming to this church, that the church is a big deal to me, and the idea of what the church is, the building of God, the temple of God, the, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, all of these things that are mind-boggling, but, but some of those things haven't perfectly come to fruition yet. Like, we're still waiting. We've received the deposit of the good things to come, but, but it hasn't fully happened yet. But the way that the Spirit Himself begins to make us into what we will be is through our singing, through our willingness to praise Him. Look at how uh, Paul, uh, Peter rather says it in 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5, and 9. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then down in verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The, the reason we're to be a house for God, is so that we as living stones, as a royal priesthood, would proclaim the excellencies of our God. So when we get together, even in our imperfect state, and begin to proclaim the excellencies of our God, we begin to be but what we will be. That's how the Spirit, as He stirs in us to praise God, He makes us into God's house. This is how the author of Hebrews said it. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. As we function in our role as royal priests, we offer up on the eternal offer of incense, as it were, the praises that are due to God. And even though we aren't yet that perfectly, we begin to do the priestly service now. So we are made into what we will be by doing what we're supposed to do now. And then Psalm 22, 3 through 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In, your, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. I don't know if you've ever seen a throne, like a legit throne, and what they're made out of, gold-plated, stone, wood, whatever. God wants His throne to be built out of the praises of His people. And when we do that, when we get together, even now, and praise Him, His very throne is built. So, as we sing with joy and sorrow, both of them undergirded with hope in God, we show that we are already beginning to be what we will perfectly be in glory. And the Spirit Himself builds us into a house of praise by moving in us to be a house of praise now. Number seven, singing stirs our hearts to persevere. I want you to turn to Matthew 26, verse 30. <clears throat> it 
Matthew 26, verse 30. Hopefully this is a familiar section of Scripture for you. That the Lord has just instituted the Lord's Supper, and He's about to go out and be killed for our sins. And Matthew just throws this in there, almost as a throwaway line. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is, as it were, staring into the abyss of God's wrath. And he has to drink all of it. And what about us? When we have seasons in our lives that can be called nothing other than the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus sings. Not just after the fact, like Job, but to prepare his heart for the agony. There's a Christmas song that goes like this. And in despair about my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does He sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Singing prepares you to persevere. Because trouble will come. In this world, you will have trouble. It's a guarantee from the Lord who knows all things. Be like Jesus and sing to prepare your heart to trust Him. And even God Himself, He reassures us of His love through singing. Zephaniah 3, verse 17, The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one, who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We can reassure our own hearts by singing to Him. Why? Because when we sing songs that are fitting and true and biblical, it causes the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. The Gospel itself, all of what God has revealed to us in and through the person and work of Jesus, when we sing songs that are right and good and true, it causes it to take root. So let us pray. And then, let us re-enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Father, Thank you for giving us such a text and such a Sunday. May we now sing to you. No matter what our circumstances, no matter what we're feeling, and even though half of our musicians are out, I pray that the words on our lips and the attitudes in our hearts would be so true and so honoring to you that we would preach the gospel and the value of the word of Christ without saying anything other than the words of the songs we're speaking. In Jesus' name, amen.